Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we look at the federal government's fiscal outlook. Is it wise to not seek a balanced budget? Is it a good idea for the government to invest $595 million over five years for journalism? Also, a story of a woman who was evicted due to her rent being lower than her neighbors. Yeah. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The financial update that uh, Bill Morneau presented yesterday, it's called the Fall Outlook, and it's really just a mini budget without all the details in it. And uh, lots going on there, lots of criticism for it, some people actually giving it a, a, a very cautious thumbs up. Uh, but with the government unveiling its fiscal outlook, anybody that was planning on seeing a balanced budget, well, you're going to have to wait, and wait a long time probably. The plan this year includes a cautious approach focused on getting bigger bang for our bucks. Joining us to talk about it is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Morning, Barry. How are you doing today? Hello, Bill. Uh, d- d- really, given our circumstance and given the, the, the words we heard from the prime minister and the finance minister over the last four or five months, there's really no surprise there yesterday, was there? I guess not. It's certainly an example of how what goes on south of the border affects us dramatically. Uh, if it were not for the, the, the tax cuts that went to the corporations in the U.S., uh, I don't think we would be seeing this happening at all. Uh, the overall economic picture otherwise wouldn't indicate that uh, we should be going into further debt because the economy actually has been pretty good. It will not be like this for forever, however, and that's among the kind of considerations the, the government has to be thinking about. Well, the, uh, but this is typical politics, though, isn't it? I mean, we want, as, as citizens, to say, hey, we want this government to look long-term and see that, hey, there are dark clouds on the horizon. But we tend to, and certainly governments tend to, live in the here and now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they live in the here and now. Uh, I mean, that's true of so many issues, certainly including global warming, but long-term concerns about uh, about the pension plan, about health care. Uh, yeah, politicians are thinking only in the near future. We have an election scheduled for next October, and that trumps everything else. Yeah, this is the uh, the Scarlett O'Hare approach to economics, isn't it? Tomorrow will be another day. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I, I don't think they're thinking very far beyond next October, though. Well, uh, th- yeah, this is, I mean, when we, I, I think we use the same analogy when we were, were talking about what the province did here with Vic Fidelli last week when he did his fiscal update. This is really just the pre-show for the, the big budget, which is coming in probably February. Yeah, things change. I, I mean, more than anything, I think these particular changes are geared to the uh, the tax cuts in the U.S., which means that corporate money is going to flows south even to a faster degree than it would have otherwise. Unless, so this was really done to try to stomp that, that, that kind of trend. There is one wrinkle. Uh, in the United States, there were hardly any strings attached to how the, uh, the, the tax cuts were going to be affected. Here, at least, uh, there are going to have to be guarantees that it's going to affect uh, expansion, uh, development of infrastructure, uh, and, and acquisition of various assets, rather than just passing it on to the uh, uh, the shareholders as as pure profit. So there are some differences, but in general, uh, this is what's going on is just a response to the fact that uh, they are concerned that the economy might very well start to slip in that in the next really well, it's less than eleven months now till the election. What about the? Let's talk about what's going on south of the border. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, Morno has been getting a lot of pressure right now to to match what Trump did with the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts especially. And, and they didn't quite do that, but obviously, as you say, they offered some incentives with some of the money that they're getting. But the indications right now is that the U.S. economy is starting to slow down. So, I mean, there's an argument to be made, I think, at this point, Barry, that, that maybe even what Trump did, as much, as much as business loved it at the time, it's not really doing a whole lot for the economy. Economies ebb and flow no matter what. 
Yeah, Andrew Coyne had something in today's yeah. National Post basically uh, suggesting this is great if we never have another recession. But, uh, <laughs> that, and, and look, we've had a fairly strong period. So, you know, it's been a, almost a decade now since the, uh, since the last one. Uh, but one can't assume that this will go on forever. But look, with globalization, I think more and more our uh, economic uh, output or whatever it is is dependent less on what our government does, more on international circumstances. For us, that particularly means the, uh, the United States. Um, and indeed, what they're hoping is just without being able to really control the tiger that they might be on, they're just hoping that the good times will continue to roll without any degree of certainty that that will occur. Um, again, they've got a, a relatively short window now be, between now and the next election. But even there, it's not absolutely certain that things will be as good, uh, you know, a year from now as they were as they have seemed to be lately. That's the roll of the dice with just about every government, though, isn't it? That uh, the uh, you, you want those economic good times to roll around just about the time that you're looking for re-election. Well, there's always uncertainty. I, yeah. I guess the degree to which we are influenced and really dependent upon the po- policy south of the border, uh, if there's a, a changing trend, it's been in that direction. So. From a political standpoint, now, uh, the opposition parties, of course, are going to say this was a, a, a terrible document and it's awful, uh, and they talk about deficits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But given the circumstance and given the track record over the last 12 or 13 years here in this country, are, are deficits deficits rather just the new normal when it comes to budgets? Well, they're certainly the normal. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, that they're good. And look, they, the government's going to be criticized from the left by the NDP, from the right uh, by by the conservatives with different concerns. The uh, conservatives will claim that in fact the debt is being run up at an irresponsible level. The NDP on the left will long uh, will complain that in fact it's a sell out to big business. Um, but the way the polls have looked of late. Um, the NDP is certainly less of a threat to the liberals than the conservatives are, and quite frankly, the conservatives at the moment don't seem to be that much of a threat either. But the uh, the NDP has really not taken off since uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh has been the leader. That may change in the months to come if he ever gets into the, the House of Commons and is able to sort of light a fire there. That's possible. At the moment, right now, I don't think the liberals are too, too worried about the NDP. Um, and even with regard to the conservatives, although... There is an appeal uh, by more traditional uh, uh, thinkers that the NDP might have, excuse me, that the Conservatives might might be a more appropriate alternative. At the moment, the Liberals still have a, a fairly healthy lead. It looks like, at the moment, things can change. Uh, perhaps the last time I was chatting about this, I would have said something similar. But at the moment, it still looks like a Liberal majority. Yeah, we saw the Nanos poll that was released earlier this week, and about a 10-point lead for the Liberals. But uh, is, is Quebec going to be the battleground here? Because the, the story that I'm hearing is that NDP supporting Quebec, which really you know peaked, I guess, with Jack Layton, uh, is totally disintegrated right now. Those seats are up for grabs, and you know the Conservatives and Liberals are going to be fighting over that. Well, it will be a battleground. I don't think it will be the battleground, uh, because, in fact, I think the Liberals are going to be much better positioned uh, than any of the other parties. Absolutely, the NDP is, is shrinking dramatically in uh, in Quebec. The battleground, however, in terms of where the, the swing seats will be that will determine whether it really is a Liberal majority or not, those are probably going to be in Ontario, and those are going to be right within the... Uh, the the range of, of you know of, of your audience um, it's going to be in the the 905 where uh, I, again I'm not sure that the conservatives are going to be positioned to win the most number of seats but if if there's to be a blockage to a liberal majority it's the seats in this particular area just outside Toronto moving around the uh, the Niagara Peninsula toward Hamilton that in fact uh, the the conservatives are going to have to pick those seats up if they're going to be able to to at least block a liberal majority so is that why Doug Ford is being the bulldog here against Justin Trudeau well, Doug Ford, I think that's just in his nature. I think he's very much taken on the aura of, uh, of our neighbor to the south uh, president. Uh, I think he's into fighting. Uh, I think, I mean, it's not, he's not actually, his neck's not on the line for another three and a half years. 
But uh, yeah, it's his style to be belligerent and, in fact, to go after the liberals. And it's certainly in that that was the area where the conservatives did well. And quite frankly, that's usually so. This is not unique, both federally and provincially. It's the 905 area, uh, moving a little bit north and east of Toronto, but especially west of Toronto, around toward Hamilton. That's the area that really determines who wins elections and whether they have a majority. But uh, Andrew Shear just has not seemed to resonate with voters, and, and and at least Ford's getting headlines. He may not be re- resonating with voters, but he he seems to be doing Shear's bidding here in Ontario. Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, Shear has not caught on any more than. Um, than Singh has caught on for the NDP at the at the federal level, they may yet develop some themes. I still think that the conservatives, uh, excuse me, the the liberals are going to be more concerned about the conservative party as a potential threat, at least in most areas. There are certainly areas of the province, uh, Hamilton being one of them, um, Windsor being another, where in fact it, the the real fight is between the NDP and the the liberals. But in terms of taking over the government, it's really going to be liberal uh, liberal conservative, and I think in that regard. Trudeau is probably still concerned that the uh, the conservatives under Sheer might pick up at the moment they haven't done so, and that's why the you, the polls you were quoting by Nanos have them down ten points or so. Barry, as we mentioned, the the big budget's going to come in February, and that's really going to be the election budget because the election's just going to be a few months after that. Uh, has he left any wiggle room here to offer some goodies? Oh, I think they'll come up with something. I, I have a hunch that, that that's to be determined because uh, if they have the lead that they have now, I think they'll be less concerned about that. Then uh, even though that that uh, will only be what six seven months before the election itself, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, I, I think the the writing of the budget uh, come come February or March uh, depends upon what the liberal standing is going to be. If in fact they slow down, if the the, the conservatives start to move back, I think you'll see much more government spending and much more goodies as you've described them. Um, at the moment, I think they ca- probably could have a fairly standard budget without giving away too much more and still be able to succeed. But, you know, that's, what, at least three months down the road. But the the only times that we've seen the, the Conservatives come close in this polling in the last year or so since uh, Scheer has taken over is usually when Trudeau's done a, f- a political face plant, and, and it's it's more negative press against the Liberals than it is positive for the Conservatives. Uh, yeah, if he's, in, if he's in too much in the news, I think after that India trip, I'm not sure if that was such a big deal in itself, but in the short run it had some negative publicity for the Liberals. At that point, I'm not sure they fell very far behind the Conservatives, but their lead shrunk to almost yeah. zero. But lately, uh, lately it's been good, and I think the budget. And now again, the, the 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 real budget's not for a few months still. But I think the if there are changes in it, it'll be very much reflect the public opinion standing of the of the liberals at that particular point. Right now, the, the liberals have a fairly substantial lead. Right now, I don't think they're going to be too many giveaways. There may be a little bit, but not not a whole lot. If they start to shrink between now and February, things will change. You mentioned about Jagmeet Singh, uh, and of course he doesn't have a seat. Uh, he is running in a by-election. We just heard this morning that probably they're going to have that by-election early next year now, it lo- looks like. Uh, but he seems to be trailing there. What what happens to him as the leader of the NDP if he actually loses in that by-election? Well, look, Burnaby South isn't a safe seat. The NDP has held it more often than not, but uh, they all, really all three parties are in it. Uh, the irony is the conservative. I think it's in the conservatives' interest to have the NDP win it because if anything that hurts Jagmeet Singh and the NDP helps the Liberals more than it helps the uh, helps the Conservatives. Uh, your question, though, is what happens uh, to the NDP if he loses? They're they're in deep doo doo. They're in deep doo doo anyway. Um, and I'm not sure. Uh, we'll we'll see. Again, it hasn't even been scheduled yet. But if the um, if if that uh, by election is in in the late winter or the early spring. 
I'm not sure that the NDP is going to be positioned. In theory, I guess Singh could resign and have some other interim leader replace him. But it's quite possible the NDP would go into that election with a wounded leader and they would be in bad shape. And quite frankly, they're already in bad shape, so they'd be even in worse shape. But if, if he should lose that by-election, and it's by no means a lock for the, for the NDP, uh, and they'll put a lot of resources in, but if he should lose that, that by-election, it's not clear that the NDP will be in a position to really have a, a, a serious replacement convention between then and then the election in October. There used to be, I guess, uh, almost a gentleman's agreement. This was back in the days when, when you know these, these things were made, uh, where, where our party leaders are running in a by-election. They usually either not contested or just to get them into the game. Uh, they're not doing that this time with him. No, that certainly has happened. It doesn't always happen, but it's frequently happened in the past. Um, look, the liberals would love nothing more if they can, if they can uh, basically decapitate the NDP. Uh, that that makes their situation next October even better. But that, that it's the conservatives that are in the interesting position of how, in fact, do they play the election? Uh, if, do they have a, if they have a stronger campaign, will that bleed more votes away from the liberals and therefore give the NDP a chance to win? The, um, I, I'm sure they would much rather if they could somehow transfer their vote to sing in Burnaby South. I think that would be the smart play for the conservatives. For the liberals, it'll be very different. Is is it natural to assume that if, if NDP is losing territory, that those votes, which obviously t- tend to lean to the right or left, rather, would simply go to the liberals by process of elimination? Oh, not all. N- nobody ever votes consistently. You know the way that the uh, the experts, quote unquote, think that they should vote. But in general, I think it's fair to say that the. Um, Otherwise, NDP votes would be more likely to go liberal than conservative. That doesn't mean they'll all go. It may only be sort of by a two-to-one margin. But again, if the NDP is weak, the liberals do better than the conservatives. The conservatives are much more afraid of the liberals than they are of the NDP. So that's the calculus. It's not that they all vote the same way. Some of them won't vote at all. And there could be all sorts of other factors. We don't even necessarily know who all the candidates are that are are running against uh, Singh right now. But again, in the national picture for the uh, for the conservatives is that they would rather have a stronger NDP bleeding votes away from the liberals than what's been going on lately. There was a time when federal elections were taking place where anything that the liberals gained usually stopped at the Manitoba border, and they'd pick up some seats in B.C., but not much in the Prairie Provinces. Has his, uh, his courtship with Rachel Notley helped at all in Alberta? Um, well, you're, you're talking about uh, Singh and Notley, uh, uh, now I take or it. Trudeau and Notley for that matter. Um, no, I don't think Trudeau's. Look, I think Notley is gone. I, I think it was a fluke that the NDP won that election in Alberta like, almost four years ago now, um, and indeed there were unusual circumstances, particularly the division of the conser- the right of center uh, vote into two parties. I, I think Notley's gone, and and yeah, I think that that's part of the reason why, in fact, Singh has uh, has been much closer to the B.C. New Democrats than the Alberta New Democrats in the in the tension that they have between them. It's too bad for Trudeau because, in fact, Notley was an ally on the carbon issue, but the carbon issue is kind of blown up in his face anyway. He doesn't have very many provincial uh, pr- provincial allies on that particular matter. doesn't mean he has no cards to play, but uh, uh, he certainly, uh, the uh, Tr- Trudeau's the opposition, provincial opposition to Trudeau on the uh, on the uh, carbon question is is significant, and Notley's absence will just make things worse. If, if Trudeau could help Notley win that election, I'm sure he would, but it's, it's just not going to happen. Alberta just is not the, the natural feeding ground for the New Democrats, and they were lucky to win last time, I guess, in terms of that situation. Um, 
so I, again, I, I can't I can't say with any certainty. The irony here is you've got the uh, the liberals being more concerned about the Alberta NDP than the the, the federal New Democrats are. But that's <laughs> just you know the way politics sometimes plays out. It's uh, yeah, which makes it fun and interesting all the time. Barry, thanks as always. I appreciate the input today. All right, thank you. Bye bye. Barry K, yeah, political science professor from Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the uh, more controversial issues. Well, I guess you argue to be made that everything. You have, Bill Moore knows that yesterday said it was controversial, but uh, it was uh, tax credit for news subscriptions and uh, basically uh, financial help for the media. Uh, now, this has been talked about for the longest time, and I know that time and time again, uh, media outlets, corporations have gone before the CRTC and gone before the federal government and say, look, you got to help us here. I mean, we know the, the situation because uh, we hear every day about layoffs and newspapers shutting down, uh, radio stations, television stations laying off staff. Well, yesterday, Finance Minister Bill Morneau unveiled measures worth a projected $595 million over the next five years to support struggling journalism industry. Uh, joining us to talk about this is John Best. He is, of course, the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, thanks so much for the time. Uh, f- first of all, uh, w- w- were you surprised that they actually included that this time around? Uh, no, not completely, Bill. There was uh, some hint of this uh, over the last two or three weeks. And uh, I think, you know, when we saw a couple of years ago the government uh, making moves to help television news uh, with, with some subsidy, mind you, it was more of a rejigging of uh, money that they were getting from the cable fund. It didn't really represent mm-hmm. new tax dollars. Nonetheless, it, uh, you know, when they extended that uh, benefit, which uh, helped stations like uh, certainly our local station, CHCH, uh, you you kind of had the policy starting to click into place, so no, not not a total surprise, really. Let's let's talk about the the current state of the industry, though, because I think we need, we need to do that as, as as context here for why they had to go in in this direction. Uh, there are those, including some of the people on the other side of the the benches there in in Parliament, that will say, "Look, it, it hands off." I mean, you know, free market. If they go out of business, they go out of business. Uh, and, and I know there's an awful lot of people that agree with that whole concept, John, but the reality here is, uh, especially given some of the stuff that's going on south of the border right now, there's an argument to be made that journalism is, is maybe more important than it ever has been. There is, uh, no, no question. And, you know, there's a number of ways of, of dealing with that issue. Um, you know, first of all, if, if you look historically, um, you know, the government used to be one of the larger advertising Governments at all three levels used to do a lot of advertising. Uh, a lot of that is gone now. It's uh, mostly going to uh, online. And the trouble with online is uh, the only people that really make any money online uh, are either uh, paywall subscriber-based uh, news outlets, and, and they're not, I think, generally covering costs. Uh, but most of the money goes to these big aggregators like Google and Facebook. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the money that gets spent online effectively goes out of the country and doesn't really benefit, uh, you know, the producers of news in this country at all. But that when that occurs, and, and we've seen that happen with the, the shrinking field of journalism right now, uh, it, in one way, it's it's terrible for we as as voters and as as citizens of the country. But at the same time, there are probably some people in government that think that's great. That means we can control the message now. Yes, and 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 that is a danger. And and indeed, if if uh, we I've read uh, two or three accounts of what Mr. Morno is talking about, and it's it's really not clear how this is going to roll out. 
but uh, it's got to roll out in in order to not interfere with news gathering and and free uh, free reporting and commentary. Uh, the, whatever the funding formula is, it cannot be tied to the actual content of the news. It, there, there's going to have to be some kind of a formula that's neutral uh, and doesn't take into and and therefore accessible to all, regardless of you know whatever the editorial slant of that news outlet is. The other thing that's not clear here, Bill, is uh, how much of this is going to print and how much of it is going to uh, broadcast media. It's it's not really clear. They just talk about journalism and. Uh, you know, they, they're, uh, I think it's more uh, publishing-oriented, but uh, we, we need to get a sense of that as well. Yeah, that's the downside when you do these fall fiscal statements. and We, we saw that with the provincial one last week. Uh, lots of uh, pomp and circumstance here, but not a whole lot of detail. That's all, They say that'll roll out in February, but, uh, but that's a question I think a lot of people want to ask right now is, you know, where's this going to go? When they say journalism, what kind of journalism are they talking about? Well, exactly, and and uh, there's a couple of places here where you, where you really wonder what they're talking about. First of all, a 15 percent uh, tax uh, cut on on purchasing a subscription. I don't think that's much of an incentive to anybody, and I, I have no idea where where that came from. But they are talking about spending, uh, you know, close to 100 million dollars a year when this thing is is fully rolled out. Although when you look at the number of news media around um, you know that that could be pretty thin uh, at the end of the day and then the question is is uh, how how much of it do the big guys get and and does any of it trickle down to small operators like ours or uh, you know that's that's another issue uh, some of the support that's already there uh, frankly is not all that helpful uh, to the community news sector either uh, because uh, it Largely, uh, if you look at what's in place now, it largely supports uh, publications that are that ha- are subscriber based, and of course, almost every community newspaper is uh, has free distribution, and yet they're still investing money in news gathering, and we see that here locally. So there, there's a lot of question marks about this thing, but certainly. Uh, the intervention, I think, at this point is is welcome, and and hopefully there'll be some, they are going to uh, consult with the media uh, to see uh, how they can best roll this out, and hopefully uh, it doesn't all aggregate to uh, all the big players at this point. Well, that's a concern. Let's let's get into that. There's so much to, to this topic, but you're right. That's one of the major criticisms, and I think there's there's some validity to what they're suggesting here because what they what they said they were going to do yesterday, and again, they're they're pretty short on details here, is they're going to strike an independent panel to be established for news and journalism community. And they're the ones that are going to get down to some of the details on this. The problem with that, of course, is, well, who's going to be on that committee? They say it's going to be independent, but it's going to be obviously chosen by the government. And and there's always going to be, every time this happens, John, there's always going to be this criticism that, well, you know what, you, the, you know, the, the, you're not going to get independent journalism then because, the, the, you know, this is the that's where the money's coming from. They're going to be beholden to whoever the government is. Yeah, I mean, there, there is no perfect, uh, you know, when you get a government uh, subsidizing an industry, it uh, doesn't matter what the industry is, uh, th- there's always that element of uh, either the, the perception that there are strings attached or the uh, uh, or, or a, a real 
fact of, of strings being attached. So it, it's never perfect. Uh, but, you know, if you go back 20 years, um, the media were deriving a, a fair amount of revenue from, uh, and let's talk about the print media, uh, we're getting a lot of revenue from all three levels of government with uh, recurring ads. Uh, and I don't think anybody back in those days, so, you know, when the media was pretty fiercely independent, um, I don't think anybody tied the ad purchase to the, uh, you know, to the news content or the editorial content. Um, there, there was a pretty good sense that, uh, you know, the, what they were buying was your audience, and, and there was no sense of uh, trying to control the content. But it's not perfect, and uh, let's hope that uh, you know some some independent voices are heard in that whole thing. Well, and I understand the criticism. I don't think it's valid uh, to a certain extent. I mean, maybe the best example of that because it's currently happening is the CBC. I mean, they get money from the, the federal government, of course, sure. and, and and people that don't like what they see or hear or read. Uh, from CBC say, well, you know what, they're, they're just kissing up to the government. and Obviously, they don't listen to Rex Murphy or Chantal Hebert or, or Andrew Coyne or anybody else. There's a number of, there's balance there, but and they, they are critical of the government, whoever the government might be. But I guess it's really in the eye or the ear of the beholder in situations like that. If you don't like what you hear, you're going to say, well, that's because they're getting money. And that's, that criticism is always going to be there. I don't think it's very valid, but it's going to be leveled at anybody now that's, that speaks in, in favor of anything that any government does in the future now. Well, if you go back, uh, you know, way back in history, if you go back to the 20s and 30s uh, in Canada, uh, political parties uh, actually, in some cases, purchased media outlets. And uh, in the, you know, there was no pretense of objectivity uh, back in that era. And, you know, if you, uh, I like to comb through uh, the Mackenzie King diaries. I find them fascinating. And, and in there, uh, there, there's a couple of occasions where advisors uh, talk to him about attempts being made to purchase newspapers fr- that they can then convert into being friendly to the government. And that, that would include papers like uh, uh, The Globe. And um, uh, there, there was another passage there that I read just recently where they were talking about buying the Windsor Star and turning it into a liberal organ. So, you know, the, the notion of news media objectivity is, if, if you look at the whole two or three hundred years that we've been you know, issuing pamphlets or whatever the medium was, um, the the whole objectivity thing is uh, only about 40 or 50 years old. Well, and it's always been there. I mean, you know, let's face it, even some of the print media that we have however, now, they get labeled. I mean, you know, you look at Sun Media and you say, well, you know where they are in the political spectrum. And, you know, the star, of course, is known as the red star because they always figure, okay, it shifts to the left. Uh, and again, it's that's I, I think an unfair criticism because I think there's balance in a lot of those. But obviously, you, you read a certain columnist or an opinion piece, and then you think, okay, fine, they're biased. Well, of course they are. They're opinion pieces. That's that's part of the problem. I think a lot of people in the public have right now with the media, whether it's the electronic media, or print media, such as yours, is uh, they can't differentiate between opinion pieces and reporting. Well, and and that's partly the media's fault, um, uh, particularly in broadcast media. I mean, if you, if you look at a, a CNN, uh, yeah, they they say, uh, you know, we're these are this is commentary and this is reporting, but uh, you know, most of what CNN is doing is panel discussion, which is totally commentary, and in that regard, uh, you know, it's almost nonstop commentary. And, and I'm critical of CNN more than Fox because 
I mean, Fox is clearly the most biased news outlet out there, but uh, they never pretended to be anything else. Uh, whereas CNN, uh, especially when Ted Turner owned it, I mean, he was very focused on having an up-the-middle, uh, non-biased uh, news outlet, and it has drifted so far away from that that, uh, you know, and and, may, and partly uh, I think that's reflected in the ratings. I mean, CNN and MSNBC, which are the two uh, anti-Trump uh, cable stations, uh, their their combined audience is only about a third of what Fox is doing, and, and so obviously that that comes down to marketing and free market, et cetera, which is what the conservatives right. are saying, and that's why they're saying, well, they don't give any money to this, uh, to journalism at all. But uh, if they if they were to adopt a policy like that, and certainly that was the mean, the, the mindset of the Harper government in in the previous campaign, uh, where does where does journalism go? I mean. Uh, does does that mean I know when the, this is only the strong survive? We get that because it goes on in other places. But at the same time, uh, I think what this is 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 at least a passive reference to the importance of journalism uh, in keeping politicians' feet to the fire. Well, and and what we're seeing, and we're seeing it here in Hamilton, is uh, uh, journalism is is actually quite hardy if you think about it. Uh, because now you more and more you have you know news gathering does cost money there's no question about it but more and more we're what we're seeing are what you might call volunteer journalists uh, you know you see it with uh, with people like Joey Coleman that uh, he's not everybody's cup of tea but he's the only person that I know of that sat down and interviewed every or attempted to interview every candidate in the last municipal election, that's a massive undertaking. If you had to pay a journalist or a team of journalists to do that, it would be, you know, it would just be cost prohibitive, I, I would think. So, you know, and, and so you get these volunteer journalists who, uh, you know, typically are using social media as, as their medium. And uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, they you can't tell who's, you know, what kind of standards, what kind of rigor there is in their reporting, uh, whether they've had any journalism training. Um, so it, it, it becomes a bit of a wild west. But I, and, and then the other thing is that you look at, at traditional media outlets, um, you know, with uh, bankruptcies and, and then the companies being reformed. Uh, a journalist today is is not earning. In some cases, they're not earning as much as uh, we were earning uh, in the mainstream news media twenty years ago. And so there aren't enough are, of them either. I mean, even yeah. even even you know entities that exist, well, such as you know the Spectator, even CH CHML. I mean, go down the list. Yeah. Uh, other radio stations that have no news departments here now that used to, uh, and, and with that shrinking, uh, you know, number of people that are actually covering or, uh, news or or opinion pieces for that matter, uh, I, I think it's a disservice, obviously, to the public in situations like that. But it, it all comes down to, like you say, the, the old adage that the devil's in the details. Uh, who's going to be on this panel? Uh, is there going to be somebody from you know from uh, well, whoever, one of the major newspapers, or what about the television networks? Are they going to be there? And if that's the case, is this going to trickle down to some of the smaller people, some of the smaller outlets, and some of the smaller journalists? Does this mean independent journalists? Because they do talk about, uh, they say, eligible digital news media. Who's going to determine what's eligible? Well, and there's already, that's right, because there's already a, a complaint about CBC uh, with their digital presence, uh, that they're... Uh, coming into markets and uh, 
sort of replacing uh, what had been uh, at least uh, notionally profit-driven news outlets. People, you know, in, in certain markets, or the, the subsidized news gathering operation is competing with, with commercial news gathering operations. To the, and, and because of their greater strength, that you know, the, the commercial news operations uh, may be threatened uh, with extinction. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really going to be interesting. But even if you said, okay, we're going to open it up to uh, small media, independent media, and so on, who, gets, who determines who, who those representatives are? Because that sector of the, of the media is, is pretty disorganized. There, there's no real, you know, there's an association of community newspapers. But, um, you know, there, there's really no effective association for the, all the independent journalists who, numerically are probably the biggest number right now. Well, I mean, usually a local example here, a, a typical council meeting at, at downtown here at City Hall, uh, who's in media row? Uh, and, and, and are those people going to be represented, and can they continue to be represented? I mean, uh, are those the people that they're going to focus on to say that's the one that needs help, or is it just going to be the big players? Hard to say, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, we can we can nitpick the details, but the fact is the government, at least has recognized that there's a need here, um, and and they've thrown a significant amount of money at it. Um, you know, a hundred million a year uh, is is not chicken feed, and uh, there's going to be so many mouths to feed, though, that it could get watered down. That the the actual amount that anybody receives is is not enough to make the difference. But you know, we'll we'll just have to see how that works out, and depending on the criteria they establish. Um, it may be that uh, news outlets have to alter uh, their their business model in order to qualify. I don't mean altering their editorial model, but there, there may be some aspect of their business model that needs to be uh, looked at. Because most community, if we're talking about newspapers, community newspapers, most of them are free, and the support system that's in place right now is based on paid subscriptions, which is kind of... Uh, a bit of a dinosaur, certainly at the community news level. Well, exactly. It's 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 twentieth century thinking to, to try to solve a twenty first century problem, uh, yeah. because and again with digital stuff. And I, I know that, for instance, uh, online now. I mean, a lot of people have paywalls, and okay, you've got to subscribe if you want to read the whole article, or you you get five free articles a month or something like that. It's different things with different entities. But uh, d- does that go away then if you're going to be subsidized? I mean, this is this is going to cause, a, I think, a major rethinking in the way things are, are being done right now. Well, uh, the, the articles I read uh, are, are suggesting that some of this support will be available to uh, both for-profit and not-for-profit. This whole uh, the, the one thing I do like, though, is the ability, uh, they, they appear to be uh, open to allowing uh, newspapers uh, or media outlets to be established as as charities, and and I think that has some merit because you'd be able to issue tax receipts, and that would be a way for the general public to support uh, media uh, without uh, you know and and have some incentive to do it because it would be tax deductible, and uh, I I could see we're seeing that in the states already where where some of these floundering media outlets that, that were in really deep trouble, and, and one of them was the, the Washington Post uh, are, and the Wall Street Journal, are now being taken over by uh, some of these tech giants' uh, owners. And uh, 
the result is that they, they've instilled um, stability back into these organizations. They're willing to absorb losses uh, in order to keep quality journalism going. And uh, so that, that, that's kind of an encouraging sign, and that might be something that could happen here. Well, we'll see uh, when they strike this panel just who's going to be on there, and it's going to be interesting to watch this as it unfolds. John, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, from the uh, Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For you this week on the uh, CBC website, I was struck by a story that Samantha Craig had written, and uh, wanted to, to talk about it because it's all about rental properties and about availability of rentals, and it's a problem. It's a crisis, as a matter of fact, for an awful lot of people in this community. Uh, in the story that uh, Samantha gave us, uh, it was about uh, a young lady by the name of Shauna Chorney, uh, who was evicted from her apartment basically because the, uh, the landlord said, look, I've got to reduce the number of people in this building right now, and you're the one paying the lease, so off you go. You're gone. Unfair? Yeah, sure it is. But it seems to be uh, symptomatic of a problem that's going on right now looking for an apartment uh, and trying to find one that's even affordable. Uh, so I want to get Mike Wood into the conversation here. Mike, of course, is the chair for uh, Hamilton Acorn, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mike, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I reread, I know you read the story all about uh, Shauna Chorney and, and what was going on there. And uh, the, the sad part about this is this is not unique. This is happening on a pretty regular basis, apparently. It is. It's happening a lot, and uh, the way the city bylaws are written, it's not protecting uh, tenants. And, and when they rent a place, they, you know, they're not they're not aware if the home is zoned correctly or not. Uh, so then they take into a rental lease, and they end up being there for X amount of years, and they end up, uh, you know, the city comes in and they slap an order up on the door saying you have to comply, and uh, the landlord is uh, now choosing to evict Shauna. Uh, on no grounds. The the apartment she actually lives in is on the main floor and it's completely legal and there's no safety issues there. The reason why she's being chose to be evicted is because of the rent being the lowest in the in the rental property. Well, and, and let's maybe give some details for folks that didn't see Samantha's article uh, the other day. Uh, this a building apparently was is zoned for four units, four rental units, and there are six in there right now. So the the uh, obviously there was an inspection. They said you got to get rid of two of the tenants, which is why that happened. Well, and of course, in in her particular situation, she was paying the lease, so she's she's gone and she's trying to find another place. But, but here's the thing that that I'm, I'm perplexed about, and we're trying to get some answers from the city on this. Uh, as you mentioned, Mike, the zoning is is in place. That's what they said. Uh, apparently, the, the individual that owns that house right now bought it when there were six units in there. So when you buy it, you assume that it's legal, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the case. And we've given some advice, like you know, they can put in some set new rules. Uh, if it be when a property goes up for sale, that it's uh, made to be uh, zoned correctly before the home is sold. So this way, we don't have these issues happening. That would make it's, sense. It would, and it would also help a lot of uh, uh, renters from being displaced. In the meantime, we we're in the middle of an affordable housing crisis right now. And the city of Hamilton really needs to step up, uh, adjust the bylaws. The bylaws need to be completely overhauled because they're quite old, and the last time it's been looked at was 2013. Um, it's not updated to the modern day of what rentals are right now, and it needs to be updated. So that's why we've been pushing forward with City Hall to update the bylaws and also come in with new uh, um, rent control issue uh, laws where it protects the tenants. But here we have to also make sure that 
you know, we're asking the city to make sure that they grandfather the existing units in. Um, if it's if if there's no really health and safety issue, then really you're just displacing tenants for no reason. And thirty around thirty percent of the rentals in Hamilton, of small rentals that is, they're they're not zoned correctly. So we can end if the city just goes around slapping orders all over people's doors, we're going to end up with a lot of people going in and and ending up homeless because they got absolutely nowhere to go. As they keep saying, the rental. Uh, market is very low for availability. So where are all these tenants going to go when they continue to keep throwing them out on the street? The city should step in place and help these tenants, the ones that they're displacing. Uh, in Toronto, they, they don't even have, uh, they don't even displace people. In a rare instance, the city will even step in and help relocate with the tenant and help them out where Hamilton is not even doing that. So this is where we need to change a lot of the bylaws that are existing and uh, and bring them up to what they should be today for standard. Well, for instance, because the, the statement from the city here, Mike, I think it, it, I think it underscores the problem. Uh, it says uh, if, if there was illegal zoning, that means it's not safe and healthy. Not necessarily. I mean, that depends on the unit, doesn't it? I mean, in yeah. this particular case, I mean, it may well be. And, and, and their, their definition of not safe or not healthy may well be because of some standards that were set up, as you say, years ago that probably need to be revisited at this stage. That's and, right. and that's not to say we want people to live in unhealthy and un- unsafe environments, but that's what the inspection's for, isn't it? It is. That's what the inspections are for, and they're 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 falling in many ways. Like they're quick to to throw up a zoning issue order, but when it comes down to repairs and and things like this, tenants are being left behind for many months or even years with uh, you know not so much of a of a nice place to live because repairs aren't being taken care of. So they're they're slow on that end, but then they're quick enough to say, hey, here's an order, you're not zoned correctly, and then the tenants get thrown out. The property standard says it's not our fault, we're not doing anything wrong, but they actually are because they're encouraging displacement, and that's not something we should be seeing in the city. We should uh, see more encouragement when it comes to uh, better rentals, uh, um, of course, healthy and safe rentals, but at the same time, they should be making sure that they, the bylaws are set at a certain minimum where people are protected across the board. Uh, you know, if we have tenants being just thrown out the door just because of a zoning issue, but there is no safety issue right, really there, then what is really the issue here? I mean, and and her again, her main floor unit is 100% legal. So for her to be thrown out, it's because the she pays the lowest rent in the rental and the landlord has just decided, you know what, we're going to get rid of you. And it's pick and choose. So we're having a, a huge issue here where where the city needs to step in, uh, you know, help tenants like Shauna uh, from this happening, as well as Shauna does need help currently right now because the city is uh, at fault of this part, partially with doing the displacement of slapping the order on the door. And where is she going to go next? And, that, and you know, it's, it's going to become a scary issue if, if, you know, we have hundreds of tenants uh, happening all at once. Where are they all going to go? 
listen, there's there's a way around this that I I would hope that some city councilors, when these guys get sworn in and start working again, uh, might want to consider in situations like this. And there's a phrase, I was on planning committee for years when I was on city council way back in the day, and it's called legal non-compliant. And basically what that means is exactly what you were suggesting, Mike. It's, It's grandfathering something in. In other words, uh, there, there could be a, a, a place that's that's licensed to be a like, like a, a an auto repair shop, for instance. Well, and in the in passage of years, all residential grew up in there. Well, it's not really supposed to be there. You're not supposed to have an auto repair shop in the middle of a residential area. But if it's been there for sixty years, it's called legal non-compliant. In other words, okay, it's allowed to do that. But if you ever sell it, you can, in other words, it's never going to continue. But as long as that person's there and that business is there, they're allowed to stay. Why can't we do that with renters? and have legal non-compliant. In other words, check the regulations. If there's nothing wrong there, you don't want 17 people living in a, in a four-bedroom house. I get that. But as long as you're sensible about this, I don't understand why they can't modify the regulations. And and they can. It's just they choose not to. And, and we've never really, uh, you know, when it comes to them having meetings at the table, they've never really uh, gotten right down to it and said, okay, this is the way it should be. But and and the talks just continue to keep going around, but nothing is actually getting done. And this is where we're coming in trying to push for this to actually happen. Because if if rentals are actually uh, you know safe and there's actually nothing wrong, and it's just only a zoning issue, then as you just said, with that, it it, it should be in place so that way we have protection. You know, it's it's really not a hard thing to do. It's it's a really a matter of the city council uh, sitting down and actually working hard at this and doing something about it. Well, there's there's a committee, Mike. I mean, there is a committee. They struck a rental housing subcommittee. Uh, Who's on that committee? Uh, The rental housing subcommittee, the last meeting we were at, uh, there's uh, um, a couple of uh, people from the HDAA, Hamilton District Apartments Association, and uh, there's... uh, there's an advocate for uh, from McMaster University, a student uh, for student rentals. But really, when it comes down to actual rentals, there's no tenants sitting at the table. So this is where we have the unbalance, and um, you know, there's not enough voice. And the last time I sat at the rental housing subcommittee, we brought a report in, and the, the Aaron from the from the HDAA said he was disturbed that we brought this report in because he wasn't prepared enough on it, but really what it is is that they didn't like the report because it was the facts and truth. We we had tenants uh, do a survey, and they really don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to know that there's actual issues out there. They want to protect themselves more than the tenants, and and this is where the unbalance comes from. Yeah, and that's what you need here is balance. I'm I'm not suggesting that okay, let's let's screw the landlords now. I mean, there's got to right. be balance. I mean, this is the, what they've chosen to do. They you know they, they, we need rental properties, we need landlords, but there's got to be some balance here for for everybody. And 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 the city's got to step in here and try to create that balance. And you're right, the first step here, the best first step here is to look at the regulations right now and to say to these our standard. I'll give you another quick example. I mean, for people that were as landlords applying for for instance, changes in, in zoning or whatever the case might be. One of the old restrictions, and I know you know this, Mike, used to be parking spaces. In other words, if you had so many rental units, you had to have so many parking spaces. And they had a, a formula, like a ratio. And we looked at that and said, wait a minute, there's a lot of people right now that rent that don't own cars. So why would you impose a regulation like that on them? Because it doesn't apply. So they've, they've been flexible about that. Why can't they be flexible about the other ones? And and that's that's our question as well. They can they can be flexible, and we ask them why can't you be flexible with these issues? But 
again, they have to make that decision. They have to really start thinking about everyone uh, and and be clear and uh, and and be honest about it. As you just said, there's a lot of people out there that don't drive or don't have a vehicle, and that doesn't always apply. So these other laws can be pushed in place and it can be done it's a matter of them sitting at the table and saying this needs to be done but as long as we keep having uh, uh these discussions and nothing actually gets done at the committees then then the issue just keeps going around in the big circle which we've seen done for quite a few years with the with the rental housing subcommittee uh you know we need we need clear points at the table we need to make sure that these things are looked after and taken care of the whole thing is is that we have tenants being displaced each day. I see it happening all the time. And as much as we keep bringing this up, it just keeps being hidden. Uh, we reached out with Sam Marilla's office. Sam Marilla said, why don't you get a roommate? That's not the answer. It clearly is not the answer. We need, uh, we need to have better representation. We need to have uh, a clear voice on the issues. It's, it's not a way to hide it. And we need to make sure that these bylaws are, are brought up to date and uh, to standards so that way everyone's protected and the tenants are actually going to have a place to be uh, honestly I, I mean the city's going to have to answer to what did they do next when it comes to the homelessness uh creating homelessness from throwing tenants out over issues like this well uh, to go back to the example that uh, that uh, samantha craggs wrote about here uh with uh, shauna chorney uh, she was paying one bedroom 634 dollars a month uh, the ones that she's looking at right now, and this seems to be almost standard, are over a thousand. So this is almost double uh, what she's usually paying. I mean, you know, impose that on anybody, and that's going to be a hardship. It's one thing for the city to say, "Hey, we're just we're just you know looking at our bylaws here, and we're just enforcing what's already on the books." But what about the fallout from that? That's what they need to consider here. That's true. And when I go to bylaw and I talk to property standards, they say the same thing to Hamilton Acorn all the time. All the time, it's the way the bylaws are written. And that's that. That's where our main issue comes from. The bylaw is very old. Um, the laws are are in place from 2013, and they're not brought up to date. Like they should be consistently always brought up to date to uh, today with what the rental properties are. But again, we're moving forward with this. But the bylaws are actually not moving forward, and it's it's creating more of an issue as each year goes by. So. It's a matter of getting down, sitting down at the table and actually getting things done and not just talking about it. It's about getting the, the things that we've brought up as Hamilton Acorn at City Hall. We brought this up numerous times, but it, it seems to just go unheard. Uh, you know, it really falls on deaf ears, and we really need this to be taken care of. It's really important. Affordable housing crisis is, is happening right now, and we, we can't have people being displaced just because of a zoning issue that actually doesn't even affect the the tenant or the rental. Well, the uh, new council gets sworn in in just a few days, and maybe some new eyes and a uh, new perspective on this might change some of this stuff. Mike, let's stay in touch. I appreciate you joining us today, though. For sure. Take Thank care. Thank you so much. Mike Wood from uh, Hamilton Acorn. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.